Amen. If you enjoyed an extra hour of sleep last night, can I get an amen? If you have small children, they just whack their schedule up. Say amen. Amen. I'm with you. Turn with me your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Um, we're uh, deeply honored to have uh, many guests in our uh, service this morning, and uh, we thank you for coming. We want to acknowledge several special guests. Um, we have some international students, some of them here for the first time. We've got one from Kenya. We've got a couple from India. Uh, we have uh, three from Nigeria. And it is always a privilege, Sunday in and Sunday out, to have uh, people from around the world that would come uh, to Wyatt Baptist Church. We have a relationship with the ABS uh, and the International Student Ministry over at SAU, Association of Baptist Students. And so it's our pleasure to uh, have relationships with these students and to build relationships with these students. We have the holidays that are coming up, Thanksgiving and Christmas, where their dorms kind of shut down and and we would love to provide homes for them. We have some of them that will be staying with some of our members uh, during uh, Thanksgiving. Um, but with that being said, there's, you can go and, 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 and show hospitality to these students at any time. Uh, several of the ones that are here today are just here for the day. Uh, just several of our members are, are hosting them in, the, in their home just for the day for, for uh, lunch and, and maybe a small group tonight. And so... Uh, just to let you know, you don't, to be involved in that ministry and to be hospitable, you don't have to, uh, you know, commit to a week or at Christmas four weeks. Uh, you can start small or you can uh, stay small and just have them in your home. It's a great, great experience that our church has benefited from and the students um, benefit from. But thank you for, for being at Wyatt this morning. It is very good uh, to have you. Um, this past Tuesday, uh, if you're a church history nerd, uh, of which I am, uh, it was a very special day. It wasn't just Halloween. Um, it was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther was a man that was gripped with the fear and the wrath of God. Uh, so much so that he was caught out in a storm and there was thunder uh, and lightning, and, and he said, God, if you will get me to safety, I'll become a monk. I will become a monk. And, and he got to safety, and that's exactly what he did. He became a monk. And because of his fear of the righteousness of God, he became a very, very dedicated monk. In fact, he once said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. In fact, it was so bad that he spent so much time coming to the priest to confess his sins that the priest finally said, Luther, why don't you go out and commit some things worthy of confession? You're driving us nuts here. And so to kind of give him something to do, one thing they, they appointed him to do was to, to be a teacher. Uh, to be a teacher. And when he became a teacher, he began to do something that despite his fear of the righteousness of God that he had never really done before, and that was to study the Scripture himself, to actually read the Scripture because he had to teach it. And he came across a verse very similar to the verses we'll be looking at this morning in Romans 1.17. For in, uh, in it the righteousness of God, because uh, it called Luther off guard, he said, I'm always concerned about my righteousness, but there's a righteousness of God, it says, is revealed from faith 
for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he realized that no amount of monkery could save him. That his best efforts of stirring up his own righteousness were as filthy rags compared to a holy God. And that it was only a righteousness of God that could save him. A righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. But up to this point, it had been strictly theological. But something began to happen. The church, in, in uh, taking on these bold initiatives to build more elaborate churches, they begin to need more money, so they begin to press the people. Uh, and they sold indulgences. And long story short, what that is is, hey, more, a lot of people are more righteous than they need to be to get to heaven. Jesus himself and Mary and, and uh, different saints throughout history, they have more righteousness than they need so hey if you'll give us some money some of your relatives who are in purgatory uh, will take on some of that extra righteousness and then they'll get to heaven there was a big phrase at the time when a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs and when luther saw these abuses when he saw his people his poor people who could barely feed themselves uh, throwing money to try to earn some kind of righteousness, surplus of righteousness to get to heaven, he could hold it in no longer. And that's when he went and nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Church of Wittenberg and sparked the debate. And I think at that time we sometimes probably glorify it like, like he knew what he was getting into, but I don't necessarily think he knew exactly what he was getting into. But it sparked the Reformation and the recovery of the wonderful truths of Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and the glory of God alone. And the rest is history. So, beyond just a little history lesson this morning, I want you to know something that the fight for, Christ, for, for focusing on Christ alone for salvation was not Luther's fight alone. It was Paul's fight, as we're going to see in this text. In his day, uh, as he was writing Philippians, he was dealing with people that were engaged in the fight of salvation by Christ alone. And it's our fight as well. So let's read this text as Paul, like Luther, is engaged in his own fight for in Christ alone. Verse 1 in Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put, on, put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the Jew, a Phar uh, I'm sorry, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That, I'm, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the Word of God. Amen. The first thing, as we kind of transition into uh, the sermon, I want to notice verse. I want to notice verse one. Finally, my brothers. Now, what does that finally mean? Well, Paul is actually only halfway through his letter, so finally, it, it shows that Paul was a typical preacher. Where finally, and uh, and uh, in conclusion, meant very little. Um, Paul says finally, but he still has a ways to go. Typical preacher but the, the the thing i really want you to notice about verse one is he says to write the same things to you and he, he says that's what's safe for you be careful of preaching that is full of novelty be careful of the preacher that's always preaching something new that you've never heard before because when it comes to being a faithful preacher, as much as we try and much, much as we want to be creative, we're really just one-trick ponies. And that one trick is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now there are many things we can explore about the faith and living out our faith and what that looks like in, in the world. We must always, as pastors, if we're going to be faithful pastors, tether ourselves to the gospel the truth of of christ and and his life and his death and his resurrection for for us that he died the death that uh that or, or he lived the life that we could never live in perfect righteousness and he died the death that we all deserve because of our sin so that if we would put our faith in christ we might know the righteousness of god that that is that is the main thing and if we if you have a preacher that's always preaching something brand new and some new thing, it's dangerous because that's what Paul says. Hey, writing to you the same thing, that's what's safe. That's what's good. And so what he's going to unpack for us is just the simple truth of this is that it's Christ alone. We see he first starts off in verse 2 with, with a warning about those who do not hold to Christ alone. About those who would propagate uh, a, a gospel that is Jesus and something else. That is Jesus plus something else. And, and which is no gospel at all. In this case, it's, he's talking about Judaizers. He's talking about, uh, I mean, we're talking about Philippians, a church that is uh, predominantly, if not all, Gentiles. And so they're hearing from Judaizers that, look, Jesus is great and all, but you got to get with the program. you got to get with Jewish law. Those, all the Jewish things that we've been doing all our lives, it still applies. And so it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus what we tell you to do. And the, the, the customs that we tell you to do, especially when it came to the 
area of circumcision. And Paul could not be harsher with these people. The words he uses here are dogs, mutilators of the flesh, and evildoers. He's serious about this. He's serious in pointing out that these are bad people. These are horrible people. These are dangerous people. First, he says they are dogs. Now, in our culture, like we hear dogs, we think of our little white Maltese, fluffy little lap dog, right? And we think, oh, dogs are awesome. Like, this is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the mangy, rabid, looking to gnaw your legs off kind of dog. That's what Paul has in mind here when he calls them dogs. And I think what Paul is pointing out with, to these Judaizers, about these Judaizers, is a lack of self-awareness. Because what is a favorite Jewish term for Gentiles? It's dogs. That's what the Jewish people loved to call Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, look here, you're running around, you're labeling everybody dogs, you're telling everybody who's in and who's out, and the fact of the matter is, is that you're the dogs. Like, you're the dogs. Because what you're doing is you're not doing God's work like you think that you're doing. You're doing the work of Satan because you are bringing in a gospel that's no gospel at all. The good news of Christ plus something is not good news. That's why Christ came, because we could not keep the law. What they were doing was minimizing the work of Christ. And they're out there thinking they're doing the work of God, keeping their religion pure, but what they're doing is the work of Satan. Paul was there. Like, Paul knows what this is like, right? I mean, we know the story of Paul out there. He's going to bring it up in this text. I was out there persecuting the church, thinking I was being a man of God. And the reality was is that I was a tool of Satan used to persecute the church. I persecuted Christ is what I was doing. So Paul knows what this is like. And he says, they're out there calling everyone else dogs, but they're the dogs. He then says they are mutilators of the flesh. Now, uh, this is, of course, a play on the idea of circumcision. And he's saying all they're concerned about is mutilating the flesh. They're not concerned with the hearts. They're not concerned with people's souls. They just want to get out there and mutilate some people's flesh. And it's a gross picture here. Galatians 5.12 is even grosser when Paul says to the Judaizers, I wish you would just keep cutting. It's in the Bible. It's gross, but it's there. It'd be better off if you just keep cutting yourself. If you think you're somehow going to win righteousness by some outward physical acts. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Those that, and that is the spirit of those who would add to Christ's people that want to destroy people to bring people down not to lift people up in the grace of christ and he calls them he says they are evildoers these again are are uh, people that are dead set on keeping the law and yet paul again rips them by saying you are evil doers 
You're out there thinking you are keeping the law pure and you're the absolute worst breakers of the law. Sometimes I think we, they were missing their true enemy and, and sometimes I think we miss the true enemy. We think the enemy of the gospel is the wretched sinner. We think it's the drunkard or the bar owner or the adulterer or the homosexual or the rabid atheist who is out to take down the gospel. We think that, that those are the enemies of the gospel. But who were Paul's fights most often with when it came to the gospel? Not who most people considered lost, but who most people considered the religious. Even people who, even, these were even probably, the Judaizers were probably not totally casting Christ aside. I mean, they probably said, hey, Christ is great. That's great. But, they are wanting to add to Christ. Who was Jesus' fights with? It, it was not with the prostitutes and drunkards. That's who he sat down with and tried to help them see the, their need of God and, and to, to be changed and, and to go into sin no more. But he was loving to them. His fights were with the Pharisees, who were what? The religious people who were twisting God's law, who had been adding to God's laws for generations. The greatest enemy of the truth of the gospel is not the, the, just the wretched sinner. They are, they're too busy sinning to worry about doctrine and assaulting doctrine. No, it is the religious who want to take away and add to the perfect gospel of God. It's the liberal who says, let's get away from the blood. Let's just get away from that that blood theology let's not talk about the christ and let's not talk about sin uh, let's not talk about the cross let's not talk about sin let's just love people you know people aren't that bad let's just love people and and hey god god will love that and they they cast aside christ just to do some good works or it's the legalist who would who would say sure christ is great but it is through works of, of, of the law that we continue in God's pleasure. That it's our quiet time that keeps God pleased with us. It is our abstinence from certain things that keeps God's pleasure in us. No, it's not. It is always through Christ that God's pleasure is in us. We can't add. We can't say, well, I, you know, I got through the door through Christ, but now I mean, I'm keeping myself holy because I'm doing the right stuff. Now, yeah, God changes us in His grace and His Spirit working in us certainly does change us. I'm not casting that aside. But Christ is our only hope. But these are the true evildoers, not because of the sins that they're committing, but because of the ultimate sin of, of minimizing Christ and his work. And he, he, he gives a, a testimony concerning those who do cry, hold Christ alone. And, and Paul says, this is who we are. That's who they are. They're dogs. Uh, they're mutilators of the flesh. They are evildoers. Here's who we are. And Paul says this. He says, first, we are the circumcision." The Judaizers are, are droning on about circumcision. And Paul says, look, we are the circumcision. 
What does that mean? Well, Romans 2 fleshes this out a little more in verse 28 and 29 when he says this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. True circumcision is not an outward act. It is an act of the heart. And that's not a New Testament concept. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your offspring, so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Through the work of Christ, and Christ alone comes the circumcision of the heart. And Paul says, that's what we got. You're all caught up in outward rituals, and it's about what's happened in the heart of the Christian and what God has done in the heart of the Christian. He then says, we worship by the Spirit of God. This, to me, harkens back to uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, who she wanted to get all, all sidetracked on uh, ritual and where we worship. And, and Jesus says, no, it's about worshiping in the Spirit and in the truth. Jesus says it's all about the who of the worship. That the time has come when worship is not done in a temple and it's not done by rituals. It's done by the Spirit of God. And also it, it says that, that we glory in Christ. That those who trust in Christ alone glory in Christ. See, the Judaizers, they long to boast about how perfectly they've kept God's law. They, they are the Pharisees in Luke 18, right? The Pharisee who, who stands and says, Hey, God, aren't you glad I'm on your team? Paraphrasing. Aren't you glad I'm on your team? Aren't you glad that I'm not like all these other sinners? God, I do all this, man. I, I tithe and, and man, I, I fast more than I have to. Look at me, God. But the true, true Christian is the, is the tax collector who man, just stands at a distance and says, the mercy of God is all I have. It's it. I got nothing else but the mercy. And of course we know the mercy has come through Christ. We glory in Christ. We ascribe to Christ all the glory and not ourselves. It's not, it's not us. And he also says we put no confidence in the flesh. We got no confidence in the flesh. We got no confidence in ourselves and what we've done. We know that nothing we can do can ever earn us a good standing before God. Uh, this summer, our family was going to Florida. And uh, not from around here, but I met him on the way. I met a, a dear old saint. And um, I said, we're going to Florida. And uh, he said, stay away from those casinos down there. And my first thought was, I don't remember seeing casinos in the panhandle, but good advice. 
And then he said, when, I, when me and my wife stand before God, we're going to be able to say that we've never set foot in a casino. And I didn't do this, but I wanted to say, this is what I wanted to say, but I didn't want to be the young smart aleck to the old dear saint. I wanted to say, that's great. I wouldn't lead with that. I don't think that's as impressive as you think it is. You better go ahead and plead Christ. You better plead Christ. It's great to make decisions to live certain ways and, and, and to, 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 to be a man or a woman that God would honor, but when you stand before God, it's not going to be about what you have and, and haven't done. Apart from Christ, it's going to be it's going to be Christ and everything that you did under Christ. Now, I'm sure if you press that old man, that I, I think he was a believer, uh, and I don't think I think you would understand he needed to plead Christ. But he was awful proud of that fact, and I think we need to be careful of that. I think we need to be careful of of, of of pride and confidence in what we've done because it is about what Christ has done. We plead Christ. That's, that's our only confidence. And then Paul really gets personal and he begins to, to talk about his journey to holding to Christ alone. Paul, in verses 4 through 6, he listed Paul, he, it's Paul's advantages in the flesh. Here's the things he says about himself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just as you're supposed to be. I was born a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin, a great tribe, strong tribe. And so I was born in, into a tribe, I can tell you my lineage. When it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee, and it doesn't get any more zealous in the law when it comes to Pharisee. Both God's law and the law they created, they were zealous about it. He says, I was so zealous, I was a persecutor of the church. Like I thought, like I was once just a, an absolute persecutor of the church, holding people's clothes while they stoned Christians. That was me. That's how zealous I was. He said, as far as the law, blameless. Now, is Paul saying that, that he hasn't broken God's law? No, he's speaking of in terms of the outward way that the Pharisees tended to look at it. He's not talking about, you know, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount when he breaks the news to us that none of you are keeping the law. You're breaking it because you're breaking it in your heart. As Luther would have been saved, if he could have, by his monkery, Paul, if he could have, would have been saved by his Jewishness. But then Paul, despite all of those qualifications, Paul has the realization that all is rubbish save Christ and Christ alone. He realizes his religious advancement was rubbish. Paul thought he had it right. He genuinely felt like he was doing God's work right up to the point where on the road to Damascus, Christ 
blinded him, put him on his rear, and said, stop it. You're persecuting me, and why are you doing it? And then everything changed for him. And he began to say, but whatever gain I had, I, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of that man I met on that road that blinded me. And Paul, in essence, is saying, I climbed up high on the ladder of religi religiosity. I climbed as high as I could climb. Only to find my ladder was leaned up against the wrong thing. But then Paul goes a little further in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything. So now he's opening up, he's saying, Not just my religious fervor, not just all my religious work that I did and that I was born into and that I grew up in, but everything in my life as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul expands it beyond just what his religious advancement was. He says it's not just that, it's everything about me. And so I ask you, what is that, what is your ladder leaned against that you're desperately trying to climb up and get as high as you can on? Is it religiosity? Is it advancement in your job and, and your salary? Is it having a perfect marriage with perfect little kids? Is it some sin that you coddle and that you enjoy? All earthly pursuits should fall well behind your pursuit of Christ. Even if it's a good thing that you're pursuing, it should fall well behind your affection and your passion and your pursuit of Christ. The word rubbish here is actually pretty slang. Like, it's dung, to put it nicely. It's, it's a pile of dung. That's what Paul is saying, that, hey, I'm pursuing Christ, I'm loving Christ so much that everything else in my life is as a pile of dung. Paul came to the realization that he had a need for righteousness that was not his own. And once he got a taste of that righteousness and the, and the God who gave it to him, he just couldn't get enough says at the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Despite all of his best efforts to be the best Jew he could possibly be, he came to the realization that his righteousness 
apart from Christ were as filthy rags and that he needed a better righteousness. Luther, despite being the best monk he could possibly be, had to come to the realization that his best things, his best righteousness wasn't enough and that he needed a better righteousness. And where did they find that better righteousness? They found it in Christ and Christ alone. The perfect Lamb of God that lived the life Paul, Luther, and I, nor you could ever live and died the death that we all deserved so that if we have faith in Christ, we could be found in Him. And as verse 10 says, that, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that I may, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I ask you this morning, have you ever come to a point in your life like Paul did? Like Luther did? Like anyone who's ever found salvation in Christ has? Have you come to the point in your life where you realized, I'm not enough. My good works are not good enough. My bad works are too many. And that if I had a thousand lifetimes to live, I still wouldn't be any further in earning the approval of God. You, if that's you, and you would say, I don't, I don't know that I've come to the end of myself, it's time that you do that this morning. It's time that you realize you you can never do enough good works and you're going to do way too many bad works to ever offset your debt and your separation to a holy God. But the good news is, is that just like Luther found, just like Paul found, just like every Christian finds, there's a righteousness outside of ourselves that is perfect and it is enough it's all the righteousness that we'll ever need. But that righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. And it comes through grace. It's not something you can learn earn. It's grace alone. And it's by pay, placing your faith in Christ alone. Christian, let me ask you this. Would you really look at the rest of your life and, and, and put it next to Christ and say, you know, all this other stuff, when I compare it to Christ, I'm not saying that everything in your life should be rubbish. But when you compare it to Christ, how much does it fall behind your love and affection and pursuit of Christ? Christian, we will, like Luther, like Paul, like every saint before us, when we will pursue Christ with all that we are, we will find joy. We will find a passion and a joy like Paul had, like so many others before us have had.
let's pursue Christ with all that we are. Let's pursue Him and Him alone. And every, all that other the good stuff will be blessed, but it will be blessed because we're pursuing Christ above all. I'm going to ask you to please stand as our musicians come. I'll be right here if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never come to that point where you realize your righteousness will never be enough and you've trusted in Christ. I would love to talk to you. There's people around you that would love to talk to you. But Christian, deal with God this morning and, and, and talk to Him of His greatness in providing for you Christ alone. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, thank You God, for the gospel. God, forgive us for ever adding, saying Jesus plus or Jesus and. God, it is all by Jesus. And we thank you for the good news that that is because we would mess it up if it was ours. God, if there be someone here trusting in their own righteousness, God, I pray that they would realize that they need a righteousness from God, from you in Christ. God, move in us all to make us love you more and find our satisfaction in you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In Christ alone.